the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. My week began with a storybook parade. I dropped my kindergartner off, and they were going to begin a little while later, so I just sat in the car rather than trying to go home and do something and then try to come back. As I sat, I watched all the kids get dropped off at school, all sorts of fictitious characters from Mary Poppins to every princess you could imagine in the book to astronauts and even those who pushed the storybook image a little far to dress however they wanted, whether it was a transformer or some sort of video game character that they liked. I'm sure if you asked any of those parents, um, they would say that perhaps their children's choices were a bit of a projection of their own little personalities in some way. If you ask the kids, they probably would say there's something about that character that they enjoy. Maybe they were popular or powerful or could do wonderful things. And so as I watched that little parade thinking on the All Hallows' Eve about how this is a reminder for us, a, a secular one, but um, how we're called this week to dwell on those figures, those saints in the faith, those whose names and faces we can recall, and those down through the ages whose stories we tell and recall, I've often discovered that many of us see the saints much like that. Not, not fictitious, but just so towering that they're mostly aspirational in, in, in value. We don't really know how to truly walk into that. And that's not unfounded. I mean, if you hear their stories, some of them are just truly unbelievable. Take, for instance, in 200 AD, uh, Perpetua, a young pagan noblewoman who decided she'd come to faith in Christ Jesus, having heard the gospel, and was preparing for baptism. Unbeknownst to her at that time, the Emperor Severus wanted to altogether squash Christianity, and the way in which he tried to do that was gathering up those prepared for baptism, just as Perpetua was, and imprisoned them and told them they could be free if they'd just, you know, in, offer incense to the cult of the emperor or renounce their faith in some way. No big deal. So she sat in her cell, and her father came to her and pleaded for her to renounce the faith, um, if not for his sake and the sake of their family, maybe for the sake of her nursing infant. She listened to his plea, looked out her cell, saw a vase, and asked her father if he noticed it. After acknowledging it, she said to him, can it be called by any other name? And he said, well, no, of course not. And she said, well, I can be called by no other name as well, a Christian. And so she met a gory end at the horns and hooves in the arena, as many did. Or take, for instance, a uh, hundred years later, um, Athanasius, who we only know as he's attributed to a creed that we have to fumble through about once a year on Trinity Sunday. Uh, what you didn't know was he was despised. He was called the black dwarf by his enemies in his age. The dark-skinned Egyptian bishop, who wasn't of much stature, was one of the only ones in the known world at that time to hold to the faith fully that Jesus Christ wasn't created by God, but was begotten before all worlds. He was uncreated, part of the Trinity. He was exiled five times, spent 15 
uh, or 17 years rather, of his 45 years as a bishop on another continent. He never, in the face of ridicule, loneliness, gave up the faith, continued to write and instruct his people from afar, and continued to uphold the faith, whatever the cost might be. Or take, for instance, a more recent example in the 1800s. One, if you've been here a while, know that I often bring up Joseph Sheroshevsky, um, who left the comforts of New York to go and be a missionary in China, as if that wasn't a big enough thing when he was afflicted by illness that left him altogether paralyzed and back stateside. He had mobility painfully in two fingers that he faithfully completed a translation of scripture in Chinese, much to his own pain, before his death, that the Chinese will say is one of the greatest translations of scripture they've ever had. It's not without founding. When we hear these stories that we think, you know, these are pretty big shadows to walk behind as Christians. But today is not to look aspirationally at those who've gone before, those that we can recall, those that we know by name, those whose stories we tell, but rather to also look at the fact that the same power, the same person, the Holy Spirit, who dwelt in them, dwells in you by virtue of your baptism. So for that reason, we renew our baptismal vows, which we'll do as part of service immediately following our message today. And this, this reminder actually stands central um, in one of our readings in Ephesians. And I'd invite you just for a moment to look at it with me. In Ephesians 1, if you've got your Bibles, or you're welcome if things play along with technology to follow along on the screens here, to look at it with me. Paul, um, really, the, the context for all of Ephesians, you'll see this theme not just in these verses, but throughout. Um, this theme of power, it, it recurs throughout the letter to the Ephesians because power was the backdrop of Ephesus. From the civil to the social to even religious cults that centered around trying to attain power through wealth and health and prosperity um, to the emperor's seats of authority within. I mean, they couldn't walk out in the street on any given day and not be confronted with some manifestation of power in and around them. And so Paul um, uses this theme to talk about um, the greatest power that they could ever see or behold. And he begins by recognizing that he's yet to ever see the Ephesians. He hopes and uh, desires to do so. But this portion of his letter is not just a reminder, it's actually a prayer that's recorded by Paul, that he's praying from within prison, that they'd be reminded of the greatest power the world has ever seen, the greatest person in Jesus, the greatest power, as he concludes at the end of this passage, which we'll turn just briefly towards the end, um, in that power that um, didn't just metaphorically or spiritually raise Jesus from the dead, but corporally, bodily rose Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the greatest power Paul wants them to be reminded of, that the world has and ever will see. So with that backdrop, he, he sprinkles in a couple of petitions that may be helpful for us to reflect on in our own journey with the Lord. Perhaps it's even worth capturing just these two verses uh, to be part of your own regular prayer life towards that end. Um, really, we'll camp out in verse uh, 18 and 19. The, um, uh, the, the petitions are all preceded by the word what. You'll trip over that. There's three of them. What is, what are the reminders that Paul has towards that end? So reminding them 
and giving thanks for them, he prays in verse 18 that they'd have the eyes of their hearts enlightened or opened, that you may know what is, there's the first one, what is the hope to which he has called you. So Paul wants them to remember their future hope, the future hope that they profess, that they proclaim as believers, that they hold on to, that they cling to, that in the midst of the world in which they reside and all the world powers and principalities that Paul writes about in, in chapter 6 towards the end, that they see that in the midst of that, their, their hope would be fixed on this future, this promise of Christ Jesus, that they wouldn't lose sight of that in the midst of the day in and day out. We think, of course, on the lives and the stories of saints, that the thing that got them through all the loneliness, the exiles, and certainly even through passing the gates of death itself, was that future hope. That's what fixed their gaze in the midst of life and all that they faced. And for many of us, that's um, a simple but needed reminder from time to time um, for all the saints on this All Saints Sunday that we keep our gaze fixed on that future hope. That in the midst of the trials, the chances of life, in the midst of the mundane and the ho-hum and the, the, the ebb and flow of the day in and day out, that we don't lose sight of that future hope. That we don't um, get distracted. That we don't somehow even place our hope elsewhere, heaven forbid. But that we're reminded of that future hope time and time again and we keep our eyes there fixed upon that hope in Christ Jesus. Now, if we're wondering this explanation of what is this hope, Paul actually, um, as he often does, I mean, all of this in, in the original language is just one sentence. It's just the, the longest run on ever. Um, but if you go back and read it, it, it kind of starts at the beginning and just runs all the way through. It's Paul's prayer. It's kind of just a thought thread that he captures. Um, if you ever sent a, a prayer a text to a friend. I mean, you're not worried about punctuation. I mean, this is very heartfelt, right? Um, and we get this petition. It's a great prayer. And that next one, um, what is the hope to which you're called? Um, having eyes, your eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what are. There's that second what in the latter half of verse 18. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? It's a loaded phrase. Um, when we see that, we think of inheritance, we think of ourselves, and, and so we should. We do inherit things. But what Paul's actually writing about, the recipient of those inheritance, the his, is God. It's not us. What Paul wants the Philippians to be reminded of, this future hope that they await, is this power of God working that will renew the whole cosmos in every aspect they can imagine, even the things that they don't understand from rodents to roaches. All of it's going to be redeemed in some glorious way as God's power and mind is poured out upon all of creation. He redeems it, he restores it, and he's creating a place not just to perfect what was once lost, but he's perfecting a place so that his inheritance, the church, you and me, have a place there to dwell with him forevermore. Back to the garden, where God walks in the midst of his people. That's what he's doing. And in many ways, it's wonderful for us to reflect upon. It's a great reflection for us this day because this is what's so unique about Christianity, is it not? God loved us so much that not only does he bring us into being, but then when we booger the whole thing up, he steps back in in the person of Jesus Christ to redeem it 
And then he doesn't leave it there, but he's continuing to redeem and restore it. And all of creation awaits that, as Paul writes elsewhere in his letter to the Romans. It's incredible when we think about it. And, and in many ways, that's a great reminder for us, for all the saints, that our future hope is with God forevermore. We know that. But have you ever thought about the fact that you are seen, the church is seen as God's inheritance? And that's incredible when you think about it. You're his inheritance. He loves us so much. This is what makes Christianity unique, right, from all the philosophies and world religions. It's not about me. It's not about being a part of something greater. It's that God loved us. He didn't just set it all into being. He didn't even just restore it and then say, good luck. I mean, he's bringing it all to completion so that he can be with us forevermore because he loves you. He loves the church that much. Paul later in Ephesians, talks about this mystery of marriage a few chapters later and uses the analogy of the church as his bride. There's this beautiful relationship that he dwells with his church, and that's what he's bringing about because you, church, are his inheritance. And this isn't just way off in the future somewhere to say, that's nice, that's wonderful, we'll, we'll, we'll try to remember that in the midst of life, but Paul then brings it all home in verse 19, um, that the eyes of one's heart would be opened to see the last what, what is um, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead, which is where he goes in verse 20 and following, the same power that is at work in every saint who did the miraculous things that we can recount? Is it work in you by virtue of your faith in Christ Jesus and through the waters of baptism? So that's accessible to you not in the future, but right now. And the church misses this. This is like the most buried lead in all of Christendom. If we would but see that we have access to that now, not as the world wants, to, to kind of, you know, have these showy displays or to let everyone else know their place in relation to, but rather to perfect us, to make us, to conform us as Jesus is. If we saw that, if we remembered that, if we prayed into that, if we cooperated with the Holy Spirit towards that end, um, the church has been unstoppable, even as we fail forward down through the ages. But it's a great reminder for all the saints this day. Never forget the power of Christ at work in you. Never forget that. And sometimes we need to pray the prayer to remember that, that he's at work in you. Sometimes no one else ever sees it. To become men and women of prayer, to become uh, men and women who put secret sins to death, that's the power of Christ at work in us. To have a heart as God does for the world, not loving through selfish gain, but loving as he does so that others might be as he is through Christ Jesus, be perfected in that way. Those are the things, the marks of the Holy Spirit at work in us. So this day we're reminded of that. We often dream, think, plan too small. Um, Eugene Peterson wrote not long, long ago, there's an enormous gap between what we think we can do and what God calls us to do. Our ideas of what we can do or want to do are trivial. God's ideas for us are grand. I love that. We miss the fact that God purposes grand things for you. Dream bigger. Look for God's grace in your life. 
pray for the things that we can't even ask or imagine. Because if you forget these things, let me remind you a couple last stories in closing um, of names and faces that you'll know immediately when I tell you the name. But in their day, before we saw them as saints, they weren't much in the eyes of the world, but the world wasn't even worthy of them. One of them um, that we recall um, is, is a man who um, was a reluctant leader. He was so recluse, he didn't really even want to lead. He was happy with his books, so introverted, so reserved, just wanted to be left alone, but God's call upon his life wouldn't allow that. Um, so he finally reluctantly becomes this bishop and this great mind. His name is Anselm. Um, many have come to understand the faith through the ways in which he wrote, and much of his work stands down to us through the ages. If that one's not familiar, this one will be. Um, there's this young man who's toiled with this idea of being holy. His mother prayed for him to come back to church for, for decades, um, but he wasn't really willing to be holy. He didn't really want that. He lived a very carnal life. Um, he was happy with all the debauchery of the world and said, yeah, maybe someday. Finally, one day he wakes up, he reads Romans and this call to put those things to death. God gets a grip of him, and Augustine becomes the greatest theologian we've ever seen. Or one last one. Um, there's this really unsightly, unseemly, portly guy, grossly fat, eyes two different sizes. Um, his classmates call him a dumb ox through college. Um, he perseveres nonetheless. Thomas Aquinas becomes later known as the doctor of angels. These are the ones for whom the world wasn't even worthy, and yet they persevered. They cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They don't give up. And so, too, with you. If we got that, if we got that, the church would be unstoppable because, indeed, verse 20 leaves us with that reminder. And with this, I'll close in one last quote. That if Christ is the head of the church, in verse 22, and he's put all things in subjection under his feet and head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of of him who dwells all in all. If we realize that you are part of the body of Christ and the power of Christ at work in the church, I mean, we could do incredible things. The church realizes that. She can be unstoppable down through the ages. Doesn't mean anything about numbers, sizes, budgets, goals, programs, or any of that. But if we recognize that and cooperate with that, oh gosh, God be the glory if we could get that in our generation. And that's the prayer. That's the prayer of St. Paul. Leslie Newbigin, one of my favorites um, down through the ages, great uh, missionary, theologian, worker for Christian unity, um, said this, and with this I'll leave you. So the mission is not a burden laid upon the church. It's a gift and a promise to the church that is faithful. The command arises from the gift. Jesus reigns, and all authority has been given to him in earth and heaven. When we understand that, we shall not need to be told to let it be known. Rather, we shall not be able to be kept silent. That was the witness of the saints down through the age. That's the call for you to witness to this generation so that we may pass down the faith that's been delivered to us faithfully. And so, by God's grace, call a few more to be saints as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.